Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Glad Trad Podcast. I'm Jordan Pacheco. And I'm Rodolfo Carlos. And because he couldn't say no, because we made him sign a lucrative contract, we have once again, Charles Cologne, all the way from Vienna, Austria. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Even That's what they the, tell us. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, well, this is great because I can enjoy my, my native land without the, the burnings and the, and the buildup of the election and, and, and all that stuff. Now, but just by seeing you two. Just you wait, Charles. See, the problem is that you're missing all the fun. I mean, you're in the seat of what was once a Holy Roman Empire. If you wanted a place of awesome politicking, crazy stories, and a ridiculous history, don't come to America. You go where you're at. Oh, that was then. This is now. Oh, yes. <laughs> how, would you describe, how would you describe Austria? You, you know, every country has a sort of um, kind of a, a heritage vibe. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Americans view themselves in a way. Austria's had such a lucrative history. Do they still kind of, is there still kind of a, a respect for the Holy Roman Empire, the Austrian Empire? What do you, what do you kind of find? Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of dichotomy because there's a great awareness that everything worthwhile here came from the Habsburgs. There's no question about that. But that breeds kind of a weird feeling on the part of a lot of the political class you know, they're in the media. They're kind of like resentful teenagers hmm. who don't mind spending daddy's money. They don't mind living in daddy's house, but they, uh, they're constantly talking daddy down. You know, it's, which you, you can't have it both ways. I mean, I, I, this was really summed up to me 10 years ago when I was here. Uh, there was a big silent hopeful saying, sorry, we have no emperors, only their jewels which is like saying, hi, we're thieves. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah, I mean, so, so there's that element of it. But by and large, I mean, there's, they're very, you know, you'll see Kaiser Schwamm on, on uh, the, the dessert on every menu. They're double eagles all over the place. I mean, they, and of course, too, the faith, although it's far from healthy here, it's very much a part of everything. So Corpus Christi processions are a big deal. Mm. Uh, May crownings, uh, the Epiphany. I, I mean, oh, and, and what's coming up now, All Saints and All Souls, the cemeteries will be packed and filled with people lighting candles at night. They're really, the cemeteries here at night are incredible. In, uh, you know, in All Saints and All Souls. It, it seems to me that Austria is kind of in a funny place because I see a lot of the, you know, there are a lot of, there, there are some good Austrian bishops. There are a lot of good Austrian Catholics and there's a lot of reclamation people I, I see online. But then on contrast, right, I see stories out of like some of the worst cathedrals, you know, these, these art galleries and, and the, the homo heresy that's going on and everything. Yeah, so well, you, you, let's put it this way. We Americans tend to specialize in a sort of happy mediocrity. But here is in France, uh, it is really, really good and it's really, really bad. And what's really, really good, you'd be hard to find better. And what's really, really bad, you'd be hard to find worse. Whereas with us Americans, you know, we tend to, we tend to prefer the, the big, soft, gooey, gushy middle. Like oh, a, a big cosmic marshmallow. Speaking of, so we will, I'm sure at some point we'll hit Austrian Catholicism properly. But as per, as per today's kind of theme, um, you know, we, we, you, you're California native and so is Rudy. Um, so 
and I'm I'm back here in Colorado where I belong on the on the high plains. Oh. And what's funny about the contrast between the two places is that California is a very uh, Catholicism just kind of weaved into the cobblestones. It seems to me like you can't go a corner in Los Angeles in particular without stumbling across an old church without, you can't talk about California without the mission systems, St. Junipero Serra. Um, meanwhile, here in Colorado, at least, um, you know, it's a very, uh, it took the immigrant wave to kind of bring about our sorts of churches. So our history really only is a hundred, 120 years ago. Yeah. Um, so I, I was mean, wondering if you would just kind of give us an overview of what Catholicism is to California. Right, as easy well, as that is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not that hard. I mean, where you are, actually, what, what really brought the first Catholics out were mining. You know, they were miners. Um, the, um, I suppose the easiest way to put it is that the missions were the start of California. They were the whole reason for it being. Reason being that King Carlos III of Spain was afraid of the Russians coming down from uh, Alaska and snagging California. So he thought he beat him to it, and he did. Uh, but he wanted to colonize on the cheap. So he uh, commissioned Father Serra to, set, to establish a line of missions, which he did. Uh, granted land to uh, anyone who, you know, soldiers and people like that who came along for the ride. And then uh, basically let the thing grow on its own. You know, there were four presidios uh, of troops, uh, Santa Barbara, San Diego, Monterey, and San Francisco. So the, the missions, the two towns that were founded, San Jose and L.A., which were small, dusty pueblos, and the, and the, ran, the ranchos, you know, their, their rancheros and their, uh, and their adobe houses. That was Spanish California. That was it. That was all there was. But... They managed to establish a very pleasant way of life that really didn't last all that long. I mean, you consider 1769 was the first settlement. Uh, 18, uh, 1821, it becomes, uh, uh, 1821, it becomes uh, Mexican. Mexico becomes independent. And then in 1845, it becomes American. So we're not really talking about a long period. Uh, someone born in 1769 in San Diego could very easily have lived to see the Americans come. So Spanish California, although it's really established itself on our collective memory, we think of the missions, we think of the fandangos, the ranchos, you know, and, and the, uh, the free living uh, life of the California Maquero. It didn't last very long. And there weren't that many people in California. There were the Indians, there were the settlers, there just weren't many of them. But then, California was annexed by the United States. Uh, first couple of years, nothing happened much. They knew the gold rush. And Northern California filled up with people from all over the world. And that was the beginning, in a certain sense, of the modern church. Uh, the American church. A lot of Irish came to San Francisco and uh, the, uh, the uh, mining country. Um, 
and established churches very like the East Coast of the United States. And uh, a lot of non-Catholics came rushing in. Hmm. And after the, uh, after the American Civil War, the Second Civil War, as you might call it, when they established the Transcontinental Railroad, people poured in from the East, mostly Protestant, some Catholic. And certain cities uh, in California were very Catholic. San Francisco, you know, prior to World War II, uh, was very, very Catholic. Irish, Italians, Portuguese, French. Uh, L.A. was not so much. L.A. was actually a very Protestant town. Really? From about 1870 till after World War II. We had Catholics, of course. But we also did not have the large number of Hispanics that we think of today. We think of California as an Hispanic state. That's relatively recent. The origins were Hispanic, but this huge mob of people from the East kind of drowned that the way they did the French imports in uh, the Midwest. So for a while, the church was very Anglo, very uh, politically well-placed, but definitely having to fight a lot of anti-Catholic influences. Mm. Ku Klux Klan was strong in uh, Southern California in the 20s. You know, the... The KKK had their, apparently their strongest base was here in Denver during the 20s. But it's yeah. kind of crazy that, you know, you only think of them south kind of moving north in our way. I would never guess like west like that. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And in, uh, in the north, I knew a fellow whose dad had been a Klansman in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And he uh, taught me this little rhyme, which I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind uh, reciting to you. So it goes, I'd rather be a Klansman in robes of snowy white, than be a Roman Catholic in robes as black as night. For a Klansman is an American, and America is his home. But a Catholic owes allegiance to the Dago Pope of Rome. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't that elegant? I don't know. That sounds pretty nice to me, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wish we were that cool still, honestly. Like, I don't know if they've ever seen Bob, uh, Father Bob Rainbow stole anytime recently, but. Uh... No, I'm, I'm afraid we, we lack a certain, uh, a certain countercultural cachet these days. I like but... the old, um, the old illustrations, anti-Catholic illustrations that were around back in the day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thomas like... Nast and Puck and all that. Yeah. <laughs> the shadow of rum coming into the classroom. I'm like, I don't know. That sounds pretty base to me. <laughs> So yeah, it would it would look good, you know. The the at every every Catholic church had guns stored in its basement. That's <laughs> what that's what people said. Just was it was it common for for churches to be raided kind of in that time up to twenties and everything? No, nah, not really. Not that I know. Maybe in some places mm-hmm. I don't know. I uh, I do know though the great the big joke that uh, when Al Smith was defeated in the election of nineteen twenty eight. Uh, it was claimed that he sent a one-word telegram to the Pope in Rome, unpack. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked earlier uh, in terms of how California and Catholicism work that oh, it was Anglo, but of course Los Angeles was Protestant. And is that because of the gold rush that brought that kind of thing over? No, no. The, the gold rush came to the north. What, uh, what brought the Protestants to the south was the railroad, the weather, 
Mm. And then eventually, the film industry. Ah. I've always thought that the film industry, but it seems like the early film industry had a lot of Catholic elements, though. So, oh, it did. It had yeah. a lot of Jews, too. Mm. But it, it brought a lot of Protestants out. And, of course, the reason what was interesting about the Protestants who came out is that their connections to their denominations were very, shall we say, loose. And this had been the case going back now to the 18, well, after the Civil War. Uh, and so, starting in about the 1880s, uh, Southern California became the breeding ground of weird cults, which th that particular uh, American uh, pastime originally had been set in New England amongst the Yankees. So, mm. you know, we got, uh, even in colonial times, you had the Shakers and you had the New Light cult of Shadrach, Ireland, all sorts of bizarre religions and cults popping out of it. Transcendentalism and Unitarianism and Universalism, uh, Mormonism, in fact, Christian science, uh, just all sorts of freaky stuff. But then the center of religious uh, alternativeness shifted to the Midwest. And there it sat. In, uh, there it sat in uh, the Chicago area for about 20 years. And then moved out to the big nowhere, to LA. And I'm happy to say it's it's been with us ever since. Yeah, well, well that's and it. What? You you've got you've got something against ascended masters, Lemurians, <laughs> UFOs. <laughs> What is, is wrong with you? This is all describing Los Angeles, hotbed <laughs> of Scientology. There's yes. West Hollywood. There's yes, yes. Theosophy came early on. Spiritualism, the Great I Am, Mankind United, Holy Super at Light. Oh, golly, Moses! There was a uh, a man that I met once. This was probably around ten years ago. Um, I met him at Barnes and Noble. And he told me he was a Rosicrucian and that I had been reborn, I don't know, 75 times or something like that. <laughs> Doubtless he was, I'm sure. And by you, we have not one, not two, but three different varieties of Rosicrucians. Yes. And all of it in the heady air of California. Now, uh, this was to, to a great degree. I mean, you'd find a few Catholics and Jews who for this kind of thing. But basically, it was amongst wasps that this sort of thing really, really took hold. Hmm. Uh, but we did, in, in, in the Protestant world, we managed to come up with a few firsts. Uh, uh, what's his face? Reverend Schuler in Orange County, a Dutch Reformed minister. He started the first private church. Ooh. And that eventually morphed into what became known as the Christian Cathedral. Oh. Well, no, the which is now which is now Christ Cathedral. Yes, indeed. It made more sense for the Diocese of Orange to buy and renovate that thing than you know build a Saint Vibiana's. Well, it wouldn't have been able to build Saint Vibiana's, but uh, you see, the thing is, Orange County has always kind of been number two to LA. You know, they're like Avis to Hearst. They're to Hearst. They're number two, so they try harder. Uh, in LA, we built the ugliest cathedral known to man, 
So Orange County had to try to match us somehow. And they, they realized that building something, I mean, the cathedral cost $28 million or something. It was, it was expensive. $78 million. Anyway, it was very expensive. So uh, the Diocese of Orange decided they'd compete by buying something pre-made to compete in the ugly sweepstakes. I still think we beat them, though. I think they're still number two. I don't think the Crystal Cathedral is uglier than our cathedral. This, this brings us to a really good segue because, you know, Rudy and I both are fortunate in the way that we're young guys, which means that we haven't seen the whole of, of changes and everything. But one thing that's interesting is that Cal- Los Angeles has, I think, some of the most pretty churches in the Union, certainly out west. No. I mean, Blessed Sacrament, right, which is which is the, the Jesuit hotbed. Vibiana's was pretty before it became an event space. Uh, Charles Borromeo. There are uh, there are so many. Oh, St. Vincent de Paul. St. Um, Vincent de Paul, St. Uh, uh, Immaculate Conception, uh, Sacred Heart. Uh, down in Long Beach, you've got St. Anthony, which is amazing. St. Andrews, Pasadena, Christ mm-hmm. the King. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a never-ending. Uh, because those churches were primarily built under Archbishop Campwell and Carl McIntyre. And uh, just as the Protestants exploded after World War I in numbers, so did Catholics in the East. Uh, and these, that was the great, that was basically 19, I would say 19, uh, 1918 to 19. 59 was the golden age of church building, Catholic church building in Los Angeles. Mm. That uh, that seems to echo a lot of Denver's too. Our churches are early 1900s, and we have the Cathedral Basilica, the Immaculate Conception. Um, there's there's a there's a our, there's a, our Lady Mount Carmel, not the fraternity one, but there's another one that was built by Polish immigrants, uh, yeah. red brick, very very pretty. Um, what what? So, you know, we see, you talked a little earlier, the, the strains that come from the WAS, which is kind of the culty side of California. Yeah. It seems to me that Anglo-Catholicism in the past 50, 60 years has led to agnosticism in the Church of Nice. But it seems like you, you talked about the influx of, of uh, Hispanic Catholicism. Yeah. And, and then, I know that a little bit from New Mexico, but it seems to me like that leads a little bit, like I've seen a, an Aztec procession into, is it the, not the Church of the Immaculate Conception, what's the very first church in Los Angeles? La, La Pasita. La Pasita, yeah. So it, it seems like it, as it moves back to cultural relevance and self-culture in that kind of way, that it flirts a little bit with those kind of pagan influences. Well, it, it does, but uh, you'll find that that's often encouraged by Anglo clerics. I mean, you'll find this in uh, you'll find this in black parishes. I mean, if a uh, oh, yeah. if a black parish has black priests, usually it's not so crazy. But if they have white priests, why? Yeah, there's a church in I think it's in I think it's in Chicago, Detroit, but it's white white. You've seen, have you seen this one, Rudy? It's a, it's a, it's a white priest, but they're so into African tribal drumming and yeah, relevance right? and everything. Yeah, and it's, I got it in the church. Yeah, and it's like it's like of course it's like ten white Susans and like one like black guy and like the priest, but they're doing tribal drumming and all this other kind of stuff, you know? Wow. It, well, see, though, 
you get, you know, I uh, one of my uh, one of my black friends in LA, the uh, the inimitable Tequila Mockingbird. Uh, yes, it's a stage name. She's a singer. Fine. <laughs> anyway, she uh, she and I were chatting years ago when Carla Mahoney brought in gospel masses, and I asked her what she thought of it and if she was going to go to one. And, I said, and she looked at me and she said, "I'll tell you what." I'll start doing that when you start going to mass naked, painted blue, the way you're taking it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, I mean, Rudy, you remember, uh, what was the story, Rudy? The rain stick? God <laughs> bless you, COVID. Excuse me. Um, the Can't rain stick. through the screen, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the rain stick at consecration? Oh yeah, that I mean that I mean compared to the uh, the wind chime and oh the wind chime song and all that other stuff that was not as bad, but wow. yeah there was a, a rain stick uh, consecration instead of bells here. Yeah. <laughs> what was that supposed to be? I have no idea. I mean it was just one of those things where the choir just ran amok. The choir ran the show at this old parish. Are you judging them, Charles? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I, I, I'm incapable of judging. <laughs> I was that would be California. a sin. Oh, that would be a sin. Well, the only sin is that there are the only sin is believing that there are sins. It seems exactly. Now you're learning. So you're, you're, you're catching up. That's good. So tell you're us, over. okay, you you you're a native. You grew up in in everything, and I think that for a lot of us young guys coming to bat, there's a picking up of the pieces of what the recovations are, um, but you experienced a lot of this. So will you just tell us a little bit about your Catholic upbringing and really kind of delve into what the changes actually look like? Because it seems like what there's now is happening is that I say there's a great memory holding that's going on, right? There's this kind of belief that Vatican II happened and that now, oh, it's nice that there's some Latin masses and everything. And that the whole kind of span in between, it means like, oh, it was a conversation and that, you know, people just kind of chose... No, it wasn't a conversation. People chose nothing. People told, did what they were told, and they were smacked around. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. Because you know what? Monsignor, he's the boss, man. And that's it. And if you say, well, Monsignor, why are you taking out the statue? Why are you ripping this out? Why are you tearing that out? Who do you think you are to say that to me? <laughs> now, of course, if you were my father, you would say something like, oh, the moron who gives you money. But most most Catholics weren't like that. They was just it, was it that was that obedience? You know the kind of oh obedience was was, was the Billy Club. Okay, literally, you know, if, forget the corrupt Irish Monsignor and think of a corrupt Irish cop. Uh, and they weren't all Irish by a long by a long yeah, a long statement. The ones I knew, a lot of them were. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, they were nasty. If you questioned. If you asked, where, where does this come from? Well, you know, Vatican II says, stop, where? And then you get some variation of who are you to question me? Where do you get your degree in theology? You know, had, uh, my father would always say something like, well, I don't have a crackerjacks box the way you did, apparently. But most people would never respond to a cleric that way. And they, they took it, you know. Uh, and it was terrible. Uh, any dissent was stepped on. 
Uh, and it's not as though you were given a choice. Well, the orders have come down from Rome, and so we're doing away with the last gospel, or we're doing this in English now, or we're doing that. Well, now we're going to be facing the, uh, facing the uh, people, you see, because that's the way it was done in the early church. They lied constantly. Now, whether they were simply repeated lies or made them up, that's a whole other issue. And obviously some did some and others did the other. Uh, but it was all about power and who was in charge. They could do it. They had control, so they did it. Is that does that extend down to the recovation too? Like, what came first? Would you have no, gone to mass? Uh, would you have gone to mass one day and it would have still been Latin or that quasi Latin ad orientum? Then you come back and is the altar just gone, or did it start with the versus populum? Or well, it depended on where you were. Uh, we're being in a Jesuit parish in Hollywood, which fortunately was too poor to wreck anything. Uh, the uh, we'll see. Those are the kinds of churches that can't do everything the best that had been built in rich neighborhoods and had money to build. Mm -hmm. But then when the council came along, we're too poor to destroy anything up because they just didn't have the money to rip out the altar rail, the altars or anything. Um, as to which came first, a lot depended on where you were and what the bishop was like. So the major uh, reservations in Los Angeles came later. The changes in the mass came first because uh, Cardinal McIntyre was not a great one for allowing reservations. Mm. But Manning was his successor. So, I, um, I'm very, you know, very, as I think back, I mean, my, my experience too was colored by the fact that we were living uh, in Hollywood at Blessed Sacrament. And so, Part of my experience at that time was the whole Immaculate Heart Nun drama. Well, you know, will, you, will you explain that real quick? Well, or... sure. Sure. Uh, basically, the, uh, the Immaculate Heart uh, Sisters, the IHMs, were an order originally from Spain. And in the 1920s, they broke their Spanish leadership and became an independent uh, Californian foundation. Mm. The arch the the Archbishop of Los Angeles was their canonical spirit. So they had had problems, obviously, hence the break with Spain. They would consider themselves very intellectual. They owned a college, Immaculate Art College, a high school, Immaculate Art High School for girls, both the college and the high school girls' schools. Uh, they taught in a number of elementary schools as well, including mine. We used to say IHM stood for I Hate Men. <laughs> uh, but uh, at any rate, they had issues, but these issues got worse when a psychologist named Carl Rogers took care of them in the summer of 67. They voted and decided to get rid of their rules, get rid of their habits, get rid of everything. And they told Cardinal McIntyre that if you wouldn't... Uh, if he didn't like it, they'd stop teaching in his schools. They gave him an ultimatum. Can we can we back up just real quick? You said that they voted to get rid of the clerical yeah. guard, the the garb. I mean, so is was that actually just in terms of how the church works? Is that it's was it possible prior to Vatican II to do that to vote on your habit like that, or would that kind of thing need approval? 
it would not it, like it mattered clearly in this case, but it would it would need approval, obviously, and of course it did require approval, and the cardinal refused to give it to him. Mm. I understand. So they were like, "Look, we're doing this, and yeah. it, whether okay. you like it or not, and yeah. if you don't like it, we're gonna uh, leave your schools." I I see. And so uh, he said, "Well, I'm sorry to see you go, but bye bye." Now this happened when I was in second grade. And uh, they had a plebiscite, as it were, after they dropped their habits. Now, mind you, we lived next door to the company. So we had seen them creeping up the Hollywood Boulevard in civilian clothes, you know, months before they came clean at school, but would still wear the habit at school, even though they weren't wearing it uh, to go doing whatever they did. So long and the short of it is that uh, after they did this, uh, in each of our classrooms at Blessed Sacrament, they called our name. These, these were done in each, in each set class separately. They call your name in, stand up, and say yes or no. Yes, if you agreed with the uh, changes, no, if you didn't. Now, I, uh, everybody in my class, when sister's standing there and saying, clothing, you know what she wants. You know, mm -hmm. she's got the power of life and death over there. So everyone said yes. She got the cool on, and I said no. And she said, Well, Mr. Cologne, won't you come up to the front of the class and explain to us all why you disagree? Well, I was fit to be tied. I mean, I knew we were being used, and I knew that I was going to make an example of it. I went up, I turned around, I faced my classmates, and I said, The soldier has his uniform, the priest has his cassock, and another is a habit. If she doesn't want to wear it, she shouldn't be enough. How well, old I hadn't been disrespectful. I was uh, seven. I hadn't been disrespectful. Mm -hmm. So all she could say was, sit down. That was it. And because nothing happened to me, everybody else said no. So the second grade was a wash. In my brother's class, uh, he was in uh, eighth grade. Same, same. And then he gets sent up. And he yeah. said, well, sister, I just don't understand. If you don't have to obey the cardinal, why do we have to obey you? So... My father got two very angry calls that night from two I'm very sure. annoyed nuns. This is this story is I, I I already can tell is a great credit to your parents because when you're seven year old, um, just for a story I heard recently, one of my coworkers, um, you know, he's a fellow prisoner with me at at uh, out for Latin Mass and at their school here in Colorado, uh, they recently had a thing where uh, they forbade communion on the tongue. They had it for a second and yeah and. I've, I've heard your talks on ultra vires and, you know, the actual law of the church, but that kind of stuff doesn't matter. So what's funny is that his daughter is 10, I do believe. And, you know, one day she, you know, she went up, she was going to, you know, receive on the tongue and they said, no, stick out your hand. Um, it's not like this is a bad place. Like this isn't like the drag heap of, of schools, but again, this just kind of shows the, the times. And she was like, well, um, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And what's funny is that that kind of witness was infectious because a lot of her classmates were like, okay, no, well, like, we don't want to do it. So there has to be a meeting with the principal and with the priest and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's, that's incredible that at seven, they're essentially lording over you to accept the changes. Yeah. And that, and this is a story, this is like the, this is the story I hear all the time for this kind of time. It's that 
everyone was like, all right, whatever, we'll go along with it because, you know, because who, who wants to challenge your, your nun or your priest, or your bishop or whatever, even if you have the law of the church on your side, it doesn't matter. And then one gets dragged up from the line, you know, one amongst many. Uh, and as you also don't forget that a lot, the way a lot of people reacted to all this stuff was they just left the church. You know, they mm -hmm. just left. I mean, you gotta bear in mind that prior to this time, the priests had claimed to partake in the infallibility of the Pope. No matter, they never said that. Right. But that was the impression they tried to give. But then suddenly they reversed themselves on a ton of different things. So then the question becomes what my brother asked one of these uh, jokers. Well, Father, my question is, when were you lying, then or now? Mm -hmm. See, if you're lying now, that's okay, because you only started lying fairly recently. But if you're lying then, you've always lied. So we hear we hear terms like the springtime of the new evangelization and all the buzzwords post. I know, I know. And let me tell you this, right? As a '90s kid, I've always said this because I, I work I work now at the Augustine Institute. And one thing I, I say is that it seems like the new evangelization is just going to be the old evangelization with new tools. No. So, you know, but what, what I hear when I hear new evangelization and springtime and all this kind of stuff is that there is this immediate demonization of the old. And maybe you could speak to this because I've, I've heard the story that people are like, well, Vatican II is a response to people leaving the church or people being lax in the faith or something. And what I think is if, if the Second Vatican Council was going to address this, why would it have found something like the fraternity or just a greater liturgical reverence or, or relevance in that kind of way? So it was there, what was the cause for Vatican II on the ground? Were there a lot of Catholics that were leaving the church? Was there that poor of catechesis? Were you having, as a Catholic growing in a Catholic school with nuns, was, was your education that, that abysmal already? No, um, but what there was, was a certain lack of enthusiasm, you know, going through the motions. So you gotta bear in mind, the thing would if the thing had been in good shape, it wouldn't have collapsed so quickly. So it's not as though there weren't problems. There were. I mean, uh, the the liturgical movement before it went crazy had a very laudable goal, which was to make liturgy the center of life, which it very often was not. I mean, you, you we've all heard horror stories. I'm sure 15 minute low masses during the week and things like. Yeah, that. is that that's true? No, it's very true. Okay. Uh, and one of the ironies to me is that the vast majority of, to, of today's traditional mass communities have actually achieved the ideals of the liturgical movement, which is very strange if you think about it, but it's true, because in such places, the mass really is the center of everything. It's what brings people there. Uh, it is high masses and solemn high masses would not hurt common. You would have them on major feast days if you were lucky. But they weren't that common. Uh, and yet, they are the Sunday rule in most Latin mass communities today. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's almost as though, despite themselves, they're accomplishing the goals the early liturgical movement set itself. Mm. Before Vatican II, what you often had was in the major cities, you'd have the liturgical parish. And that was the parish that was supposed to be sort of the exemplar for all the others. They'd have the best choir. You know, they'd have the most elaborate masses. Maybe they wouldn't have not just uh, 
not just uh, a solemn high as the biggest mass of the, of the Sunday, but they might have solemn uh, vespers and benediction at night. And very often, especially if you lived a little bit out of town, you come into town for the Sunday, you'd go to mass at, uh, at the church, the, the uh, high mass, etc. cetera. Uh, then you'd spend the afternoon, you know, go, go to the park, go to the zoo or whatever, and then go back to the church for uh, vespers and benediction. And then you go, go home. So you'd spend the day in town, you'd spend Sunday in town. Uh, so, and then of course, it was the thing too that some people, uh, because the uh, because of the uh, regulations on fasting, first from midnight and then uh, from Pius the twelfth on three hours. What a lot of people did was they would go to communion outside of mass early in the morning, and then go to the high mass in the uh, later morning, so they could eat breakfast for second. So, uh, I mean, there were things, there were things like that, but that really—I don't think that was the the, the, big, the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem was that, as it is now, is a lack of faith on the part of the clergy. Um, and I think that was one of the things John the Twenty Third was concerned about. But, you know, he didn't get the chance to address it. And so the council went off into all sorts of other areas, some of which they didn't do a bad job of addressing, to be fair. But none of it, at least if we're to trust either John the 23rd or Paul the 6th, or both, none of it was imbued with an infallible character. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if you see something in the council that appears, I emphasize appears, to contradict uh, prior to solemn teaching, and you just have to ignore it. If I may ask, what is your kind of statement on how we go forward with the Second Vatican Council? I'm under the. Im- go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I'm I'm under the kind of guise you know, where I say, look, the Church had the competency to call it. You know, it's it's a valid council insofar that it happened. But it's a very inter- it's a weird council because there's no anathemas, and you know it's kind of like the hermeneutic or continuity crowd for the things that are already set in tradition that it extols upon the dogma like the dogmatic pronouncement and everything. Yeah, it's totally fine. Of course it is. I'm happy that it talks about uh you know Latin in the liturgy or at least in chant and all that kind of stuff. Not like it mattered. Um, but I I do have problems in particular when it says something like uh, when on religious indifferentism. I think that that's oh. apparent in Lumen Gentium. And uh, Rudy and I were going through, was it Lumen Gentium we were going through, Rudy? Which, Nostra Aterte, Aterne, what was it? Aterne. Aterne, thank you. Um, I think it uh, was... Humane? Um, no, 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 it was something else. Sorry, I'm thinking about something else. Yeah, I think... I think but point being is, you know, when it says uh, Muslims, you know, bear the faith of Isaac and together with us worship the one true God, Right. And I just say, it's like, well, from a historical record, no, I mean, that they don't have a historical record. It seems more like a co-opting. And even so, should we as Christians now be mad that Hagia Sophia has been turned into a mosque? Because it's the same one true God, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, the truth is, of course, we don't even have quite the same Christ as the Protestants. Mm. Yeah. 
So, uh, well, I'll tell you, I, I have to agree with uh, John Beaumont, who uh, makes the, uh, he makes the uh, rather funny comment that uh, the SSPX, to take the, uh, the bet one, would agree with 80% of what's in the council and disagree with 80 percent He said, that isn't the problem. The problem is that so many bishops, heads of seminaries, and the superiors of religious orders would accept the 20% and reject the 80. And that's something no one talks about. I, and as, I, as for where we're going forward, I think one day Vatican II will be remembered like Lateran 10. What's Lateran 10? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. that, that reminds me, Charles, I have to thank you for, uh, for uh, saving a friendship. <laughs> well, <laughs> because that's the, help. that's the same premise that you used uh, in the last time we interviewed you. Um, when you were talking about the elections, you know, you, you made the example of who ran against uh, Reagan in 80. Oh. And you mentioned nobody would remember that. And I actually, I plagiarized that like Joe Biden. And I yeah. sent that to my buddy who is a, a searching leftist, I think. And I'm trying to get him to the church. Uh, but we were having a spat because he was upset that I was voting for Trump. And uh, so I, I told him, look, there's more important things than, who I'm voting for right now, and I want to be friends with you. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm thank you for that. You're welcome. I mean, in, in 10 years, 20 years, you're not going to remember it. And I'll tell you something: the friend who inspired that particular uh, that particular comment died two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he was my uh, closest friend in, uh, at school. Not a day goes by, I don't miss him. Now imagine that we'd allow the election of 1980 to come between us. Hmm. I think if it's possible for a monarchist to be friends with a, with a, with a Republican, then surely it's, it's, it's acceptable for, a, for two people of the same sort of general ilk to also be friends. Well, you would think, you would think that two Republicans would be able to get along, but apparently not. I, I mean, you know, well, I, the other thing too, I've, uh, I've decided as of today, I tweeted this, that I'm going to cease, so you know it's true now, I'm going <laughs> to cease all uh, commentary on the election. Now, you're probably wondering why that is. Why is that? Glad you asked that question. It's because everyone's minds are made up. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so what's the point? I mean, I think that this is the perfect time, really, honestly, to inject monarchy, genuinely, because if you want to talk about the ills of mass democracy just in this time, you know, and obviously, look, like I got my I got my Trump Pence vibe, but it's only because I figure if the empire is going to be restored, it might as well be under him. Like, I'm just like, at this point, I'm done. <laughs> I'm, just pulling, I'm just pulling myself away to reveal my flags. <laughs> yeah, well, you see my... <laughs> um, Charles, I want, to, I want to ask real quick, Back to back to something that you might have touched on earlier. So you said that you 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 grew up your 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 main parish was Blessed Sacrament, correct? Yeah. Okay. Were you were were you an altar server or did you guys just attend or 
No, um, I was an altar server briefly. My brother was an altar server behind. We call them altar boys because we didn't have altar girls. Then. Oh yes, we give yeah. So they call altar boys. See, this is my night. Well, see, a real trad would be all over you. They're <laughs> altar boys, moron. How did I, we didn't have any altar girls. Don't try the comments, Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> Biting my lips. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, Rudy, what you what you kind of meant, well, one thing earlier that he said was. In second grade, when you were seven, uh, the nuns voted to at Blessed Sacrament voted to do away with the habits and with all the all the trappings of the medieval church, really? and uh, and so they lined all the kids up. Not their control. Oh, but that was not their control. I see. <laughs> their control but they kept. They uh, they asked all the kids if they were okay with the changes, and uh, Charles uh, and his brother, who was in eighth grade at the time, were the only ones who were like. Uh, no, and, and what was the what was the quip that you said, Charles? Well, when I said we each had our different answers, what I said was uh, a soldier has his uniform, a priest has his cassock, and another has a habit. She has the one where she shouldn't be a nun. And my brother said, "Well, I just don't understand, sister. If you don't have to obey the cardinal, why do we have to obey you?" Ooh, good answers. Tell well. But see, it always comes down to keeping the power. You give up the twappings, but you'll keep the power. <laughs> <laughs> and see, that way you can pretend that you're like everybody else, except that you own everything, and they better do as you tell them how much to God they have. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I meant sweetness and light to all. <laughs> That's what I meant. Will you, will you tell us about your parents a little bit, especially at this time period? Because... I've always, I like, Rudy and I've talked about this, where it's like, if we were as we are at the time of all these changes, I don't know how I would have to pray for the grace to really hang on, you know? Well, I, I, I could tell you. Uh, Rudy more than me, you know? <laughs> Is that fair? Well, Rudy, Rudy lives in Glendale, so you can't expect anything anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no, Glendale's fine. It's just a little... You know, well, he's in Burbank now. Listen, Charles, I moved to Burbank, okay? Yo! Oh, <laughs> Robert Bellarmine, yeah. I'm a Burbankian a, now. <laughs> Robert, all I can say is Robert Bellarmine. <laughs> that, there's a church for you. Say Robert Bellarmine? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I, like a I've only, only been in there once, and oh, I don't think I'll ever go back. Rudy, Rudy and I met at St. Finbar's. Yeah. That's cheating. Said so Robert Bellarmine is the heart of Burbank Catholicism. And it's attended high school, Bellarmine Jefferson. It doesn't <laughs> get better than that. So the two great the two great thinkers of the church, Charles. How dare so, you? Inside the two great the two great church fathers, said so Robert Bellarmine and St. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly why they were bracketed like that in the school's name. Santo Subito. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to look at it, I guess. No, the, the priest who founded uh, Sir Robert Bellarmine and Bell Jeff was very definitely an Americanist. And that's why Sir Robert Bellarmine is like a New England meeting house. It, it, is, it was built in the 50s. And it, it looks like a New England meeting house. That was Ashley's parent, parish before Finbar's, wasn't it, Rudy? Um, no, I believe she went somewhere else. Okay. Yeah, so, I can't remember. It's another one around here. It's mm -hmm. like in the hills. Yeah. So, all right, fine. You're a beautiful downtown Burbank, home of Laugh-In and Johnny Carson. Great. Anyway. 
So Burbank Confidential is a film we made. <laughs> the uh, no, seriously. Uh, the thing the thing was, as far as my parents go, how do I describe? It? Well, I mean, I agree with you. I if I had to have the parents I have, I doubt very much that uh, I would be a Catholic today. Very very much. Hmm. And then there were a couple of other influences in addition to that, which I'll touch on. Uh, but my dad was a uh, very interesting man. My parents were actors. They had met on a radio stage in New York. Uh, they were radio actors at the time. Dad was French-Canadian, third generation in the United States. French was his first language. Um, but he spoke English perfectly. Well, he'd been a radio actor. He didn't have a choice. <laughs> uh, in fact, my English is really his English. Because he got sick and tired of hearing me sounding like a Canuck me. But he didn't want it. He didn't, uh, he didn't like the idea when I was uh, getting to high school that I would be talking like that, you know. So he sat me down every day for the summer and he taught me how to speak just like him. So that's why <laughs> I speak the best bloody by God English you ever buy in store, you know. Eh? That's right. So I don't sound like I, like I just come out of the backwoods of Quebec, me. No, sir. <laughs> so even, I, I, I sound like a real like go, huh? <laughs> so anyway, uh, the truth is that uh, he came from a family that uh, had been, as I said, they were French-Canadian uh, immigrants, and they had been part of the Sentinelle affair back in the 20s, when it looked like the French-Canadians or a chunk of them, knowing they would go the way of the Polish nationals. Mm. They didn't. But they never trusted the Irish clergy again. And that's why when everything went crazy, my dad didn't go crazy because he didn't. He used to say, well, now they're finally behaving the way they were on the inside, like Protestants. Hmm. Which may seem like an oversimplification, but it wasn't really. Um, so he, he didn't let it phase him. He would read our books, our school books, my brother and me. Uh, every time we get a new batch, start every semester, and we thought something was wrong, he would tell us. And he'd tell us why he thought it was wrong. Never expected us to believe it just because he was our father. Um, he was particularly careful to look through our religion books and correct mistakes. He uh, was quite simply the most wonderful man I ever met in my entire life from then to now. He was a tail gunner in World War II. A very, very well-spoken man, very gentlemanly, but tough as nails. And people often mistook his gentlemanly demeanor as weakness. That was always a mistake. Hmm. Uh, because he was not a weak man, and if you thought he was, you'd find out pretty quickly how, how wrong you were. Um, he's a complete believer. But he had an intellectual curiosity, the like of which I, I've never seen. I mean, he was interested in everything. He was very much an autodidact. Uh, he uh, left high school before graduation to fight the Japanese. Um, and he went to the GI, he went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts under the GI Bill. And that was all of his, uh, all of his higher education. But he read and read and read. Huge library, real, as I say, autodidact. Mm -hmm. and 
brilliant man. And I can honestly say that all of the intellectual interests I have today, I inherited from my father, without a doubt. And he was interested in everything. Hmm. Uh, my mother was uh, a very different background. She uh, a lot more money than my father's people, I can tell you. Uh, her father had, uh, amongst other things, he taught at Harvard and Columbia. Uh, he written for Commonweal and uh, the old New York graphic and a whole bunch of other, other things. It was, Grandpa was a very intellectual Catholic, is the best way I can put it. And he, um, he knew a lot of a lot of uh, the greats of his time, um, Colonel Lindbergh, people like that. And he uh, he, he taught me a concept, that, which my mother certainly reinforced. I've never forgotten, which is the idea of the church. You know, you heard the church militant, the church temporal, the church suffering, um, the church triumphant. I meant to say. Um, but Grandpa introduced the notion of the church spiritual and the church political. As you put it, the church uh, spiritual is the, the devotions, the sacraments, the saints, all that kind of thing. The church political are the men who run it. And the one, just the relationship is like the soul and the body. The soul is always, in its sense, perfect. The body is given to all sorts of problems. The problems of the body don't make the soul any less perfect, but the soul can be affected by the problems of the body. Mm-hmm. And that, that was why he always said, you know, you, you, may, you may dislike or doubt churchmen all you like, but never doubt the church. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are my parents. They were a lot of fun. Uh, they were wide awake with other other. Uh, people's parents seem to sleep. Mm. And I admired them uh, both uh, very, very much. So when the changes came, uh, it cut them up. But they were tough people. They were fighters. And, uh, you know, I remember my mother had quite a, quite a sharp tongue. They asked her, well, what do you think of, uh, what do you think of uh, letting priests marry? And she said, good God, what kind of woman would have one of them? <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 the trick, the trick of my family is always say what's not expected. Never, never respond to the bait. So, again, you know, she was asked, what do you think of women's ordination? And she said, oh, I'm against it. They should start ordaining men. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a lion. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, people didn't come back for second helping, so they were smart. So, the, uh, and that, you know, I, I learned a lot from my parents as to how you deal with these morons. You know, they want to, they because they were always dealing from a position of power, they presumed a certain narrative, a certain script, in which you, you were supposed to behave in a certain manner. What they showed me is you never do. You never, ever, ever give what's expected. Uh, you know, if if, uh, if they if they uh, the priest says, "Oh well, we don't believe in the rosary anymore," 
Wow, I don't believe in collections anymore, Father. Isn't that strange? I guess we're <laughs> all getting updated in our own way, aren't we? <laughs> and, you know, when, when Cardinal Mahoney wrote uh, that uh, Christ is present at the Mass in memory and in hope, Dad's response was, and that's the way my money will be in his collection plate. Wow. What a patriot. Well, he was just doing his little bit, trying to help, you know. <laughs> so, so that their example was very useful to me, partly because they never pretended, they never tried to sugarcoat, and they never took guff to these people. My dad used to say, especially the, some priests, you know, we call screamers. Because if you showed any doubt or opposition to what they would tell you, they'd start yelling. Hmm. So my father's uh, way of doing that was to shut them down immediately. You know, shut your mouth, father. Keep a civil tongue in your head. Who do you think you're yelling at? <laughs> well, that wasn't what they were expecting. But as my father explained to me, you've got to bear in mind that most men we know we can only go so far in being annoying before somebody shuts us up. And we don't sit around thinking about it, but in the back of your mind, you know that if you start waving your finger in people's noses and being obnoxious, sooner or later, not this guy you're doing to it, maybe, but sooner or later you keep up with this stuff and somebody's going to doll off and belt you. Yeah. You know, we, we know this on a very basic level, and it helps to keep us from behaving that way. Because let's face it, we're all fallen. And if we could do any old thing we wanted, we'd be monsters. Well, he said, the poor dear fathers don't have this hate to holiness. And so they often behave any way they want, in the worst way possible. And if they do it to you, be assured they're going to be doing it to someone else. So you owe it not just to the someone else, but to them. Mm -hmm. Shut them down. No, father, you don't talk like that to grown-ups. Bad touch. Bad. <laughs> is well, that, now, why do? What's that? Is that, that? is that the antidote, would you say, to the kind of, you know, you hear the criticism of the clericalism, and I, I find it kind of rich sometimes, depending on who's telling it, but is that the antidote just for us to realize that for the sake of the position of the priest, you have to be able to say an ultra vire? Yeah. You have to say, no, no, you're wrong, father. You can't do that. It's ultra vires. Well, there's also a sort of like, not exactly an ultramontantist like uh, perspective uh, in the church now, like um, in relation to the Pope. But I'm saying there's a sort of relation like that with the priests where like people feel they can't criticize the priest. They feel like, you know, it would be like. Uh, criticize the priest is to criticize God. Yeah, no. it would be something extreme like that. Well, I'll tell you, there may be some of it now, but there was a ton when I was a kid, which is one, way, one reason why they were able to get away with so much. And for yeah. that matter, it, it fed into the abuse scandals for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, it fit into all kinds of things. It really has not been good for the church. Uh, you see, the, the inability to distinguish an office from the holder of that office, uh, whether you're quote-unquote positive, quote-unquote negative, it's a terrible thing for both the man and the office, you see. Uh, if, for instance, you can't distinguish 
and an office is held by a man you think is an utter scumbag, you'll lose your respect for the office. Right. Contrary wise, if you can't separate the two, your respect for the office may blind you to the malfeasances of the man. Mm -hmm. Now, these are two twin dangers. Let's say they're very, very difficult, especially in a quote unquote democratic period like us, like ours, where we, we refuse to accept that we have natural betters, that some people are in authority over us. Mm -hmm. Losing that, however, also means we lose the fact that being an authority comes in certain responsibilities and that our obedience is heavily tied to their performance of their, of their duties. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a very, these are distinctions that are difficult for us moderns to make, but they're very important. Uh, the way I, I like to illustrate the thing, taking it away from the church because it's so emotional, but let's pretend for a minute that I was your city councilor. Right, and I had that this kind of attitude, so any of the clergy have. So I say to you, you know, Rudy Jordan, being your city councilman is for me the fulfillment of my life journey. It's so fulfilling for me to be your city councilman, and as your city councilman, your civil servant, I feel wonderful being here for you, and and, and you're listening to me. And finally, you say, you know, councilman Coulomb, that's great. But are you ever going to get the potholes filled in the streets, maybe get the trash picked up, <laughs> maybe have the police make sure that we can walk the streets like at 10, 10 p.m.? How about that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Rudy, I appreciate your concern in those areas, but that's really more the old paradigm of what a city councilman is. I'm not about that. I'm all about the bigger picture of the city council. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I'm going on and on and on. Well, if you don't have the gumption or, or the something to finally say, Councilman Coulomb, you are really full of it. I don't give a damn about your self-fulfillment. You're of importance to me only to the degree that you do your job as city councilman. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, to be brutally frank with you, Mr. Coulomb, I don't care if you live or die. I know you don't care if I live or die just so long as I vote for you. So, you know, it's quid pro quo. But, you know, fill my potholes, get the trash off the streets, and make it so my wife can walk alone at night. And you know what? Maybe I'll vote for you next time. How about that? Well, the same is true in the church, although we don't vote for them. Now, having said that, uh, they were a huge part of my keeping the faith. Meeting Colonel McIntyre was another big part. Um, who was my professor during high school. Hmm. Uh, he had had a real life before he went to the seminary, I say. And he gave it up to become a priest. And he always didn't have the drive. A great man, tough as nails again. Uh, nobody's fool, but a complete believer. Knew where all the bodies were buried, knew how bad church politics could be, knew all that stuff. But he really believed. And to me, as with my parents, to be honest with you, the combination of complete faith and complete realism, I've always found, it's what I've always driven for. Mm. Now, he in turn uh, gave me a, a bit of advice, which 
helped determine the course of my life, helped keep the faith. He was of the opinion, remember this is the 70s, when the most popular processional hymn in the archdiocese was put your hand in the hand of the man. Will you sing a little bit for us? Because I don't even know that one. Oh, okay, sure. Put your hand in the hand of the man who still the water. Put your hand in the hand of the man who walked on the sea. Take a look at yourself and you will look at others differently. So put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, That's no. actually worse than anything I've ever heard. <laughs> is, that, please tell me, is that St. Louis Jesuits? Is that uh, a who, who that wrote was, it? That was a popular song. It was a pop song at the time. See, they used pop songs in the Mass. Another one, this was very popular as a communion hymn, was this is why, you know, you're thinking about, oh, well, after Vatican II, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, I'll help. Here you are. This is a communion hymn. It was a play, play of my first communion. I'll never forget it. Today, while the blossoms still cling to the vine, I'll taste your strawberries. I'll drink your sweet wine. A million tomorrows may all pass away ere I forget all the joy that is mine today. Yikes. <laughs> and this is before the council. No, no, this was in the immediate aftermath. This is 68. Okay. 68. Charles, I have a question for you. I, I've run into uh I've run into this uh more often now than ever. But there's people who say that um it's wrong for us to think that the the sort of explosion in abuse, the explosion of uh not getting your child baptized, like all of the the signature bad things that we're seeing in the church today, uh, we can't say that it directly comes from the council. What do you think about that? It's well, there's a sense in which that's true. There's a sense in which it's not. Mm-hmm. The, fra- the fact is that in the immediate aftermath of the council, as with the dear IHMs, the message that came down to everybody was let it all hang out. Do your own thing. Remember, this was also at the time of the age of Aquarius. It was, uh, it was break down all the barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, people literally were ordained priests with the idea that the church was going to be allowing priests to marry within a couple of years. Mm. You know, when it didn't, they were terribly upset and left. Uh, so you, 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 the, the, the wreckage of the liturgy, the constant changing of things. Um, it, it was an ongoing, uh, well, I mean, if, if you liked that kind of thing, it was great. It was liberating. You know, you, you were like a kid breaking stuff. You ever have a little kid loose when he can break uh, models or, or, or dishes or things when you just go to town on it? He loves it. Just smashes things right and left. Little, little mouth gritting ear to ear, eyes flashing with joy. Well, that's how these people were. That's how they were when they were pulling things out of the churches and uh, bringing the guitars and everything into mass. Isn't it wonderful to be at the start of a whole new liturgy, said a priest to me. 
I was like 10. I looked at him and I said, no. <laughs> but he didn't pay any attention. He just said, he smiled and walked out. He, he wasn't paying any attention. I could, I could have said my nose is a, is a turnip, but he wouldn't have cared. He said that was a rhetorical question. Oh, yeah. Well, he believed me. He was, <laughs> he was completely on his, own, on his own path and doing his own thing. Man, working his own program, as the Marines said. Uh, and that, you know, great. That's fine. Will but you, I, uh, yeah. Will you, will you, there's something I think you mentioned to me a lot, to both of us a long time ago, but will you talk a little bit about, it seems like the impression is that it was kind of the later eighties and the nineties where sacramentals and the rosary and adoration, these kind of things were, you know, the JP2 kind of Catholic era, but in the immediate aftermath, what was the effect for Vespers, for adoration, for the rosary, for sacramentals, was there any change at all in that kind of, all went out the window. I literally did not see a monstrance at all from my remote childhood until I was maybe 26. Jeez. That is insane. I'm sure they had them. I'm sure people did them, but not any of the parishes I went to. Yeah, uh, probably in the safe. Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, well, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they must have used them in some places, but I never saw them. Uh, and the the I remember uh, well as a Boy Scout, I got the Adultary Day Award, and my counselor for our class was a Jesuit priest named Father Dalheimer at Blessed Sacrament, where Jesuits could be found in some profusion in those days. Well. Uh, I asked him about the monsters because we were talking about the uh, we we're talking about the uh, sacred vessels because you one of the requirements for the altar day is you've got to describe the vessels and vestments of the mass and explain what they're used for. So I said, "Well, how about the monsters?" And he said, "Oh, we don't use that anymore." That's really sad. Yeah, no, well, not really. It's criminal. Sad as when you get hit by lightning. Yeah. Criminalism mm -hmm. when I steal your wallet. Which of these two things do you think that was closer to? Yeah. Although to be fair to Father Dalheimer, he was just repeating, you know. What he'd Yeah. This is this is the one thing that I think all this is trads here, and something I've heard from you that I just want to say it's that. You know, I've heard, well, why are, why are there rad trads? Why are there angry trads? You know, and I, I, we here on the podcast are resus et bellum, right? We think very much of that's the way forward. But one thing that I remember you said is, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that um, they started it, if you will. Yeah. Imagine like the, the whole of the faith as you've known it. And so it's not about smells and bells and trappings for people who are like, well, I don't, it's all about just believing in Jesus. Like, well, that's the heart, but. Imagine if you've grown up your entire life believing that this is a holy of holies and this is how we enshrine and enthrone it, and then being demonized for asking, even asking, well, what the heck happened to this whole... And more than that, having this stuff attacked and you're being smacked around for questioning by the very people who have been pushing it not 10 or maybe even five years before. Hmm. I mean, you see, that is what I mean by there being a problem. Because if you can change your views that quickly, the suspicion has to be that you really didn't have an opinion anyway. Mm 
you would just, you know, the boss man say, say this, so I say that. Now he change, I change. Well, that's nice, but it means you're, you're a zero. You have no real belief in anything. You're just a party man. You follow the party line. And that was the hardest and nastiest revelation. Hmm. And mind you, most people did not see it that clearly. All they, they felt the hurt of daddy suddenly smacking them around. But my dad said, well, you've got to understand that they really didn't believe in anything before either. If they had, they would be reacting differently. But they didn't, so they'll say whatever they're told to say. And, and the content doesn't mean anything to them. That was something my dad was very big about. Don't say anything unless you believe it. If you don't believe it, shut up. You've got nothing to say that needs to be heard. Um, and he, he was right. I mean, a lot. I, I mean, it's like, for instance, Motelis Matandis. A lot of people during the COVID uh, crisis have, have had a hard time understanding why so many bishops and priests have so cavalierly closed the churches, cut off the sacraments without any apparent concern. Oh, well, just uh, make a perfect contrition and do a spiritual communion, and you know, you're good to hope. Well, because of the COVID situation, their behavior has finally caught up with their belief or lack thereof. Mm. So in a sense, this allows you to have a taste of what we went through mm. back in the 60s. And it's a horrible, a horrible realization. Because if I, as a cleric, say to you that really all you need is a perfect end of contrition and an act of spiritual communion, what am I really saying? I'm really saying you don't need me, you don't need the sacraments. And really, you never did. What I'm actually saying to you, although I'm not aware of it or I wouldn't say it, I'm a fraud and a phony. Eat it. There's nothing you can do about it. I am as phony as a $3 bill. Yep. And if you don't like it, lump it. Because guess who owns the church, moron? I do. And certainly is a feeling. Um, you know, we've we've had an episode on the limits of obedience, and that was around Easter time. So I would say, you know, that it's, was it's a tough one, yeah. Yeah. And I think we're seeing it more because we're it's now six months since we've all been dispensed from mass. Um the fact that baptisms in particular, baptisms, weddings, all the sacraments, everything's been relegated to a closet. Um, there are now cases where it's very clear that the state has control over how liturgy is to be celebrated among the church, and the church didn't even fight for it in a lot of places. No. Like. Well, see, what, and what that does, incidentally, is that it shows us the United States and many other places. The idea of church and state, as though these somehow were analogous institutions is not believed in by the leadership in church and state. The truth is it's more church and Rotary Club, church and Kiwanis, mm -hmm. church and Future Farmers of America, church and any other voluntary organization that, you know, doubtless does something for people who like that kind of thing. 
but is not in itself a power. It's a nice little group for people who like to get together and you know play that. It's like the Society for Creative Anachronism, you know, or the Renaissance Fair. It's like that. People like to do medieval dress up. That's that's all it is. Yeah. Apparently. And I don't think that kind of thing should be paid for. If that's all it is. Will you will you tell us as we as we kind of wind down? Because I don't want to. I don't want. I don't think we should end on such a bleak. <laughs> uh, your rediscovery of of I know that you you go to the Latin Mass and also uh, th- I've been to the Anglican Ordinariate because I heard about it from you. But the discovery of richer liturgy, the Latin Mass, in both that time and what that was it until your twenties that you found it again or. Yeah, well, I'll tell, I, was, I, I had begun the story and I, I got waylaid, so I'll tell you. So there we were in the 70s, listening to Put Your Hand in the Hand, etc. And Cardinal McIntyre had the strange idea that my faith was slowly being leached out of me through lack of exposure to decent literature. So he hit upon a novel, and there I say a unique solution to the problem. I say unique because I can't imagine him doing this for two or four, anybody else. He said, here's what I want you to do. Go to Mass Saturday night. Receive communion and fulfill your obligation. Sunday, I want you to go into Las Feliz. There's a church, an Episcopal church, called St. Mary of the Angels. There you'll see an approximation of the way things should be done. He had no fear of my turning Episcopalian, especially because this was February of 76. And that too had an effect, as I'll mention in a moment. So I get down there. And St. Mary's was higher than the kite Anglo-Catholic. I mean, you talk about smells and bells. Well, they had them. More than that, though, every other Sunday, they would alternate English chant versus uh, Latin. And it so happened that I'd hit their Latin. And I was exposed to the asperges for the first time in my life in Latin. Um, and the rest of it, the Sanctus, the Agnus Day, it was astonishing, a revelation. So the liturgy was amazing. The second thing that I found amazing about the place was the pamphlet round. Because the thing about Anglo-Catholics is that they had to explain everything they did to non-Anglo-Catholic Anglicans to my visit. So they had pamphlets on the real presence, on praying for the dead, on praying for Mary, praying to the Virgin, to the saints, why they had candles, why they had lights, why they used unleavened bread. Uh, I mean, stuff that one should have been getting in Catholic school and didn't. And I pillaged that pamphlet rack. <laughs> then the third thing, you must understand that I was used to a certain level of, or shall we say, actual Catholicism in French German, not English. In my experience, English-speaking Catholics did not have a very intellectual religious life. But these were Anglo-Catholics. So a lot of writers, artists, actors, and so forth, that kind of people only speaking English. It was amazing to me. And the funny thing about it, uh, parenthetically, there was an old lady, I was about to say a little, but she was actually fairly tall, named Millicent uh, McWilliams. 
no, Millicent McCambridge, sorry. Anyway, uh, she was a uh, costume designer for the movies. Millicent of Hollywood. In fact, my, uh, my white formal scarf she made for me 40 years ago. <laughs> but uh, Millicent, an amazing, really an amazing lady. But the first time I took my parents to St. Mary's, we're down after the mass in the undercroft. And she, uh, she looks at them and says, Pat, Guy. And they look at her, Millicent? Well, they had known her in New York when she was Millicent of Broadway. <laughs> and from that time on, whenever I would see her, she'd say, and how are your parents, dear? I said, oh, they're, they're fine, Millicent. They're fine. Oh, I just love those kids. <laughs> <laughs> and you she had a very different view of my parents than I did, apparently. <laughs> so, at any rate, they were, they were very, very pleasant people. But this was, as I said, February of 1976, and uh, the Episcopal Church was facing its Waterloo with the ordination of women, or the General Convention that year. So St. Mary's had all sorts of things as to why you can't have priestesses. And mind you, they used arguments of the Church Fathers and the Scriptures and, and all that. Uh, in other words, precisely the same arguments that any Catholic would make. So that taught me a lot about the priesthood. So um, I got to know them very, very well. And I, you know how Pope Francis is always saying we have to accompany people. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. So although I didn't become a Episcopalian, I accompanied St. Mary's through its struggle against women's ordination, its attempts to find a place in the post world after it seceded from Rome, uh, not from Rome, from the Episcopal Church, and because its rector, Father Barker, was one of the small group of seceding Episcopalians who wanted to go to Rome, I was present and around for the formation of the pastoral provision. Now, unfortunately, because both Cardinal Manning and then his immediate successor, Cardinal Mahoney, were very close to the Episcopal bishop, St. Mary's was not received into the Catholic Church, unlike the other parishes of the other parts of the country. So they went off to the alphabet soup of the Anglican continuum, where they are to this day. They came very close to coming into the ordinary, uh, but then there was sort of an internal explosion, and that did not happen, which breaks my heart, because I love that parish, and I feel very indebted to it as well for having helped me keep my faith. The last element to that keeping uh, came when uh, I was in high school and I went to work for a priest named uh, Father Theodore Wilcock, S.J., yes, a Jesuit, who was the pastor of St. Andrew's Russian Catholic Church in El Segundo. <laughs> and when Cardinal McIntyre died, he took his place as my confessor. Well, from him, I learned all about the Byzantine Rite and the other Eastern Rites of the Church. And through, uh, he was the head of the Ecumenical Commission of the Archdiocese, but he also belonged to something called the uh, Society of St. James of Jerusalem that gathered Eastern Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Coptic, Armenian, Ethiopian, Episcopal, Anglo-Catholic types in monthly meetings. And so I went to a number of these gatherings. Those were fascinating. Anyway, you put all those people, places, and things together, and that's why I'm still a Catholic today. Deo gracias. 
Well, it, it took a huge support team, I can tell you. So to answer your question, what would you have done in my time? I, God knows, I don't know what I would have done without it. <laughs> I'd probably be leading my own cult by now. I mean, you might as well have the right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, well, it makes them dull, you know. But, I would uh, join. well, <laughs> uh, it'd be all about uh, the Ascended Masters and the Count of St. Germain and, and the Murians and all that good stuff. <laughs> the, uh, you know, one of, one of the things I've pointed out on the podcast that few people realize is the heroic part Los Angeles played uh, in World War II. Not just driving off the Japanese, but driving off an alien invasion. Oh, yes. That's right. The, uh, the Battle of Los Angeles. The, uh, the image I gave poor Vinny, I don't think he's ever going to recover, of Tilana Chardin in Colorado manning an anti-aircraft gun and singing praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. <laughs> to this day, he says he wakes up in a cold sweat having had a nightmare of that very scene. <laughs> uh we uh there is you know we haven't even gotten to carno mahoney and where rudy and i were still whippersnappers but uh that's just gonna be for part three uh charles will you please tell our audience where they can find you what books of yours would be recommended all that kind of good stuff well usually i'm show available at the bar Busso and frank's uh after five no 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 <laughs> <laughs> no i wish that were true no uh I, I can be found on the, uh, the Tumblr House uh, YouTube channel. So put it in Tumblr House YouTube, it'll pop up. Uh, my uh, weekly podcast is called Off the Menu. Tumblr House also uh, offer a, a large selection of various of my books. Uh, my most recent book, just out this month, is The Life of Kaiser Karl. The uh, Emperor Charles, the legacy of a holy emperor. I um, recommend it very, very highly to you. Uh, it's gotten some very good uh, initial uh, reviews and so forth, so I'm happy about that. Uh, I'm living in Austria, going to school. I hope to come home for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking the cue. <laughs> exactly. I'll be home. They sing that at Mass, too, I'm sure. Well, no, nothing quite that orthodox. But the, uh, no, no, actually, the, the, my favorite of the horror hymns that came in in the immediate wake went, uh, Sons of God, hear his holy word, gather around the table of the Lord. Eat his body, drink his blood, and we'll sing a song of love. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! I I heard that when I was like six, but so you went like it's like it's like this is if I may real quick. This is something I'd be able to like about trads because we we all meet together, and what what I've discovered is we all have a shared kind of musical PTSD of the church, of all yeah. the things, right? More than just the recommendations and everything. So someone will start up like, sing to the mountains, sing to the seas, which is like my like remembrance one. And yeah, <laughs> and Rudy's face says it all. <laughs> For me, it's all the Spanish ones. The Spanish ones are like the worst. Oh gosh. Well, well, they, horrible. they are. There's, a, there's one Spanish one that goes to the tune of Red River Valley. <laughs> and whenever I go to a Spanish fest, I hear that, you know, 
Oh, it's got Spanish lyrics. I don't know what they are. Those are the lyrics. Del Senor. Very important. Del Senor. Del Senor. Well, you know, when I, whenever I hear that, I see the English lyrics. <laughs> Come and sit by my side if you love me. Oh, no. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. But remember <laughs> the Red River Valley. Oh, my God. And the cowboy who loved you so true. Charles, when is your birthday? <laughs> we'll have to uh, sing happy birthday to you like Marilyn Monroe. Oh, gosh. <laughs> happy birthday. Ah, <laughs> that sounds like a Craig call. <laughs> the, you know, the heavy breathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, no heavy breathing, thank you. But it's November the 8th. Sixth the anniversary of JK JFK's election. Remember, oh. remember the eighth of eighth November. of November. <laughs> the Kennedy treason and plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be sure to do that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Again, you can find Charles' work at Tumblr House website with tumblrhouse.com. I know that your books are also on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so that's perfectly and, acceptable. Uh, um, and Tan, Tan has the last two. Tan has the last two. Thank you. Um, also, where's the, um, where's the best place to purchase it for you, though? Yeah, uh, Charles. Just send it to. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I, I guess um, any any uh, any books um, any books of mine that came from Tumblr House. Tumblr House is the best the best bunch to get them from. Uh, the others. It, it uh, the others I would recommend Tan Amazon is a last resort. Okay. You hear that, people? Yeah, people. Your convenience. Your two-day shipping. <laughs> Support Mr. Cologne. And remember, if you anything you uh, anything you order from Tumblr House, if you order if your order is twenty-five dollars or more, free shipping and handling. That's easy, people. What are we doing? But not today, but it's free. Don't worry. It's easy <laughs> math. Free. Yeah. Void will prohibit it. Only while supplies last. Uh, <laughs> you have to say it faster, Charles. Operators are standing by. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Charles. Again, if you guys want to see also his video podcast that he does, please just go ahead and type in Tumblr House here on YouTube. That's T-U-M-B-L-A-R house uh very good long episodes as well as a lot of short form highlighted contents that's uber helpful about a ton of topics across the catholic and cultural world um ew, I see no it. CODs no huh? CODs no CODs no CODs here yeah for the man himself <laughs> uh please don't forget to like comment subscribe share this video we are growing last time we interviewed you Charles actually we were just under 100 subs so we uh you helped us push us over the edge so, uh, so we're very grateful to you and for you coming on. We'll have to have you on extremely soon because there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, no, we want to hear like the uh, Mahoney before years. The, before the election. Okay, we can do that. Well, looks like we'll look before out next the election. Mm -hmm. What kind of world are we going to have afterwards? I don't know. We want to make sure the internet still <laughs> runs. So, <laughs> Well, that's, that's it. You see, the, 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 I, I, I hate to get into reminiscence mode when we're breaking up, but just remember, Y2K. I was I was five. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You
or five, and you remember the uh, to this day when people ask me like right now, are you ready for the election? Man, I'm still trying to get ready for Y2K. I, I, just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's happening. All right. Well, listen, guys, it's been great. Yeah, so, Charles, that that crown on your on your flag back there lines up perfectly on your head. Oh, you like this? Yep. <laughs> and that's exactly what you are. You are a king. Thanks, for, thanks for coming onto the show with us. Yes. Uh, you're very, very welcome. That, by the way, is the Royal Croatian flag. Ooh. We will, we will do a, under the Habsburgs. I was going to say, I knew it would be Habsburgs related. I can yeah. see that. I see that, you know. So thanks for coming on, Charles. We'll have you on extremely soon to kick up from Office of the Glad Chad podcast, too. God bless you and Mary keep you. We'll see you on the next one. God bless you. Ciao, ciao. God bless you.